Thank you, ladies. I know you just filled in, but the Lord wanted us to hear that song this morning, and I appreciate that kind of drawing a connection. We celebrate and thank the veterans for their giving us freedom here in this land for a few years, and Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us to give us freedom uh, for eternity because of his shed blood, and so thank you for that message for us uh, this morning, a, a, me a message of reconciliation or a peacemakers. Uh, we all have struggles with, with the people at times, and some households, the struggle gets so great that uh, it seems impossible to mend. Uh, but I, so I am thankful that we have Scott here this morning to, uh, oh, there you are, to present to us through God's word uh, the reconciliation between men and reconciliation with God. So Scott, will you come and explain your ministry? And then tonight he's going to preach as well, uh, going to present maybe more of his ministry tonight. So I encourage you to come back this evening. Scott? <laughs> Thank you very much. I didn't realize that I was hiding from you. That would be a lot of anxiety for me if I was getting ready to introduce, introduce someone, didn't know where he was. Uh, so we are thrilled to be able to be here. My wife Marty is in the third row where I was sitting. Uh, we have been married for uh, be 37 years here pretty soon, and God's given us uh, four children and five grandchildren. Uh, one of our uh, children, our oldest, uh, he served in the Marines, and so we appreciate so much what you've done today in showing honor to our veterans and, and uh, just a great blessing. As your pastor has said, uh, the peace that we have as a country does correlate well with the peace that Jesus Christ has given to us that we have as local churches to share with others. Uh, that we are the not only the symbol, but we are actually the source that God uses to bring peace into the lives of other people. And I've got to say, what you do here is so critical, and I'm encouraged to see your ministry to young people. It was through the work of a small local church that was willing to embrace me as a child that came from an unchurched home and to bring me into their love. And when I started seeing the peace amongst them and the love that they showed to each other, it, uh, it convinced me that it was worthwhile to, to follow those group of people I didn't understand uh, and to follow, the, and I, I was so glad they followed this book and uh, that this book was uh, what guided their lives. Well, Marty and I are a part of a, a group. Uh, let me see if I can understand how to work these things. Uh, let's see, if are we on here? Okay. We were part of a group called Baptist Church Planters. Baptist Church Planters works with churches and, uh, uh, and missionaries to help them work together to plant churches all over the United States. But another thing that Baptist Church Planters is concerned about is helping churches be healthy enough to where they would be a part of that endeavor. And so they have a church revitalization team that they have put together, and God has been gracious to put Marty and I on that revitalization team to help churches uh, that are in need. Now, I look over this group, and what a beautiful audience. There's a lot to be encouraged here. Uh, some of the churches we go to uh, do not have this many people. Matter of fact, uh, if you were to keep up with the culture of churches, the average church has less than 75 people in them. And on a given Sunday, they have people out hunting, but they're not hunting deer. They're hunting another church. 
And our desire is to be able to collaborate with churches, to be a source of encouragement to these other churches that are going through times of, of, of discouragement because they don't have good direction or discouragement because they have a lack of peace in their group. And as a result, they are not being the lighthouse that God had designed them to be in their local congregation. So we are excited to be able to be a part of that type of ministry of Baptist Church Planners. We are sent by our church, uh, Crossroad Baptist Church down in Ames, Iowa, where we served for 12 years as their family pastor, helping with counseling and a variety of other ministries with their families. And uh, they saw not only the need of other churches, but also the gifting that God has given to us to, to send us out into this ministry. So what we're doing now is that we are actually working on developing partners. Uh, we believe when God spoke in the book of Philippians, and he says this, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, uh, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship, or even a better word for that is partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul saw the people of Philippi as his partners to be able to go and have impact in churches and all the known world that they had at that time. We are anticipating that God will also do the same thing for us on a, on a smaller scale to help churches, Baptist churches in our country, be able to be strengthened so that they can be at a place where they can support missionaries or plant churches. Uh, to give you an idea of how God does this is he has really brought a lot of individuals that have a compassion for local churches. 75% of our current commitment and gifts come from those individual families that support us. That's over uh, 40 different uh, family groups that have gotten together with us to uh, help us be able to do this ministry. And you can see how it breaks out that individuals takes care of a certain amount of church, and you can see our remaining. We're at 80% at this particular time, and we're looking forward to God continually to provide. But uh, we want to... Uh, encourage you that there's ways in which you can find out more about this. Uh, we have a, a little sheet like this on our table that's in the back. If you'd like to get our monthly newsletter, just sign up on that and put that in the box that is there. We put a box on the sheet so that you can put your prayer request because we do see this as a partnership and we want to pray for your needs. Uh, also, what you can do is you can look up. Uh, we have a, uh, a little card here, a prayer card that we utilize if you'd like to look at our uh, 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 Facebook page or also our our internet website. Uh, we have that information on there. Uh, we noticed that your church uh, put our website on your Facebook, and uh, as a result, we already had people uh, looking at uh, at those things. But you can find out more that way. Or the final way is you can just show up tonight because we're looking forward to sharing in more detail in regard to what God is doing in our in our ministry here. Uh, so we're we're excited about what. Uh, uh, what God is uh, doing in our lives, and one of the things that we can do, whether it be uh, churches that are smaller, or whether they be in Iowa, or Minnesota, or, or even Arizona. I thought of the dear couple going down to Arizona this month. God had us down there in August. It was 111 degrees. Now, so we're going to have to work with the churches down in Arizona so that we can do that somewhere between November and April, it sounds like. Okay. But, uh, but, the, but the, God has given us the privilege to work not only helping churches to develop good strategy, but help them work on their culture. Because 
You can have the greatest strategies to be able to uh, function as a church, but if your culture is not there, if you don't have a culture of peace, people are not going to be attracted to that because that's what God has called us to be able to do. And that's why today we're honored to be able to share with you one of the messages that we share, uh, whether the church is at a place where they are uh, excited to help and encourage other churches, or maybe they might be at a place where they need encouragement. We want them to be equipped with some tools from the Bible on how to deal with conflict from a biblical perspective. And so I'm honored today to be able to share with you uh, four different uh, ways in which we can renew our minds. You'll find the notes in your, in your bulletin, and we'd be glad to be able to share this with you. Let me have prayer with you one more time uh, as we start our time together. Father, I am honored to be able to be with the dear folk here. Uh, we thank you for the pastor who's willing to uh, step aside and allow me to step behind this podium. And Lord, I pray that I will be a good steward of this time, and it will be an encouragement uh, for the people here who have been not only an example to the, the folks in this community, but have shared so much with pastors and their wives all around this state. And I am just really pleased to be able to be a part of a church that cares that much for others. And we just ask that you would bless our time together, that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this next passage here in Romans chapter 12, Paul has already developed all the great theological truths about who God is, who we are, our need for Him, what He does for us, and now in chapter 12 he has started talking about the practical implications of that, and he has shared this passage, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I have many people that get stuck on that first few words, if it is possible, and they're regularly saying, this isn't possible. Do you know what I have to live with, where I need to work, or where I go to church, or what I'm going through? It is not possible. God is saying that it's not about looking for the exclusion clause here, but looking at that next statement that says, as much as depends on you. Now, Paul by no means is saying this is all on us in the sense that we don't have any assistance through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, and through our local church to be able to do this. But what he's saying is, with the same intensity that we care about a lot of other things, let us press towards peace. Let us do what we can do to be able to accomplish those things of peace. Uh, One of the areas in which he is encouraging this starts out in this chapter where he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Then he goes on to say this in verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. In this world, there are many ideas on how we ought to relate with people, that you deserve a break, or you should have your way, or it's all about you, or you pick it as to what the world will try to give you as a message. Paul is saying, don't let that squeeze you into their mold, but renew your mind renew your mind through the Scriptures and allow yourselves to be driven not by a fear of man, but a desire to be able to please God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul deals with an issue in regard to this in Philippians chapter 4, where he talks about the renewing of your mind in regard to conflict. 
And it's very easy for us to look at conflict as something that is, is, is uh, horrible, that needs to be avoided, but God wants to see it from a different perspective. And in chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul is talking about two individuals in the church, Yudia and Syntyche. They were two ladies. We don't know much about them other than that they were fellow laborers in the gospel. They weren't just two women who decided as bystanders to create issues in a local church. They were individuals that undoubtedly had invested and served and had had great amount of value to the local church, but they were not of the same mind. And if you've been reading the book of Philippians, you know that's a significant theme in the book of Philippians about us having a same mind like Jesus had uh, in Philippians chapter 2. And Paul, in this context, he says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women. God has given us the responsibility to enter into the life of others so that we can help them to be able to be like-minded and to be able to have peace. Paul, later on in this passage, in Philippians chapter 4, where he says, don't be anxious for anything. Uh, I don't know about you, but conflict does that for me. makes me very anxious. He says, don't be anxious, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. And we're thinking about that Paul is encouraging us that we can have peace of mind, that we can have a peace. Too often, when someone upsets us, we want to give them a piece of our mind, right? P-I-E-C-E. God says the way we navigate this and accomplish this is we have a peace of mind. And we know that starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ, that before we can really have peace on this level, we have to have peace on this level. We need to accept the gift of Jesus Christ and standing in the gap for us and being the substitution for our sins and giving us the eternal life and eternal relationship so we can have peace with the Holy God. And God wants us to be able to show that same kind of peace with other people. And he says this in verse 8 as he kind of summarizes this idea because in order for us to not be anxious, in order for us to have our prayers be those things that are focused, he says, choose what you're going to think on. Choose on how you want to put your mind in action. One of the theologians has said, you cannot keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You are going to have thoughts about other people, about conflict, that are thoughts that you know are not biblical thoughts, but God wants you to renew your mind in regard to those thoughts and be willing to lean in on Him to get His direction to choose that which we should be thinking about. Paul says it this way, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good report, if there is any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. I don't know about you, but when conflict comes into my life, there's a lot of other things that I start thinking about. I think about what ifs. You ever have those what ifs? What if that person had never done what they had done? life would be so much easier. What if they would just stop doing what they were doing? Life would be so much easier. What if they maybe just left and never caused any more problems? Then maybe life would be easier and these situations would not be there. Or what if this continues on? What else is going to happen? And on and on and on, our mind can continue to uh, take us captive instead of us taking our thoughts captive 
for the obedience of Christ. So I have four different things that God has laid on my heart that are ways in which we need to see from a biblical perspective. And the first of those is just really being able to see conflict from a biblical perspective rather than seeing it as a thing that you want to avoid as a thing that you want to get out of as soon as you can but see it as an opportunity you know it's true in the world people use conflict difficulty hardship as an opportunity to exploit and manipulate make money all sorts of different things there's going to be a time when things go bad. Someone is going to use it as an opportunity to be able to take advantage of it. But we are called as Christians to take it as an opportunity uh, for the glory of God. That we should desire that when difficulties come, God can be glorified in this situation. I have a fork on here because one of the things that Paul is talking about in Corinthians is about the issue of eating or not eating, choosing to eat something or not to eat something. And Paul, in this context, is trying to encourage the people of Corinth who struggled greatly with trying to be able to do things for the glory of God. They, had, they fought about, about everything. They had difficulties on most things. They didn't have unity. And in this situation, Paul is talking about the value of choosing that, that I can glorify God and care about people who think differently than me. And that when we have a situation where I think one way and some way thinks another way, there is a way that God can be glorified in that situation. And that's why Paul says it this way, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Conflict gives us an opportunity to choose to be stand strong on His Word but to also make our preferences, our desires, all those things that we want in our kingdom, to be able to set them aside out of the love of God and the love for others so that we can bring glory to Him. And so one of the elements that's an opportunity for conflict is that God might be glorified. Another thing is that it is an opportunity to grow. You might be familiar with the passage that says, all Things work together for the good to those who love God. Now, I am a Christian conciliator. I have been a biblical counselor for years. I have sat down with people who are in conflict and difficulties. Their hearts are broken. Uh, they cannot get along with the person that's in the room with us. And uh, as a result, they might look at that passage and they say, where is the good in this? Who is not loving God or is God not loving us that we should be in this situation? Well, if we look at the rest of what Paul is saying in that Romans chapter 8 passage, he says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God is calling us not only to be able to, to live a life, to be an example before others so we could share Christ with us, he wants us to grow to be like his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but sometimes there's areas in our growth that really aren't as easy as we like. Wouldn't it be wonderful that everything could just be easy growth, but there are some areas where things are just difficult. They might say, no pain, no gain, right? Now, there might be times when you're pursuing a degree and the amount of work and how much our brain hurts through that process. It's designed so that we can be better equipped and we can know some things we didn't know before. But it's true also in our relationships that God allows things to come into our life that are designed to help conform us to the image of His Son. James, I think, got this right in James chapter 1, a passage that is really hard to, to really appreciate, where he says, My brethren, count it all joy. 
when you fall into various trials. I don't know about you, that's not my default. Uh, I, have, uh, I have some ways in which I can be irritated and I can be frustrated and situations come up and I'm thinking, it's, it shouldn't be this hard. Have you ever said that to yourself or maybe out loud? Okay, it shouldn't be this hard. And instead of saying, God, thank you for making it so hard, I hardly ever say that, you know? But this is what James is saying and he gives us some uh, little, little words here. Uh, first of all, he says this uh, word count. It's a, it's a word of assessment, a weigh and compare. And I'll be honest with you, when I do weigh and compare, I weigh and compare what I'm going through with what somebody else is going through <laughs> or what I've been through before. And why, why is this the hardest situation I've ever been in? But the point is, God is not inviting us to weigh and compare our circumstances or the circumstances of others. We need to weigh and compare the faithfulness of God over and over again from Deuteronomy all the way through the the, the Scriptures. We're reminded to remember. Remember the blessings of God. Remember the promises of God. Remember what God has done. And we tend to get fickle because we forget. And in this type of situation, we need to weigh and compare what I'm going through and the fact that my God has not changed in that situation. The word there, fall into, is similar to that story that Jesus gave about the man who was just walking uh, on his way, and as he did, he fell upon thieves. He was just trying to, to accomplish probably general commerce or whatever, and someone robbed him, beat him, and left him for dead when that good Samaritan came by. I think that's the same way we're looking at our situations. You might be just trying to be a good spouse, good parent, good child, good church member, good, good worker, and this trial comes in, a conflict comes in, a relationship blow up, develops, and you're thinking, why? Why is this happening? It's not like you're paying uh, uh, what Dave Ramsey would call stupid tax because you made all these wrong decisions and you're just reaping what you sowed. These are times when, quite frankly, you look at it and you're flabbergasted as to why is this happening around me? It's in those situations God is inviting us to count it joy, to weigh and compare His faithfulness through the situation and what He can do through it. Because what He says there, He says that knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. That word per- produces is a concept of result. That, that we can actually choose to waste difficult times. We can actually go through them and allow them to be a part of our lives and not have them do the work that God has designed it for to do. Uh, someone has said, don't pray for patience, because if you pray for patience, God will give you trials. Can I tell you, I know from personal experience, working in my own life and my own uh, relationship with myself and working professionally with people for three decades, that difficulties and trials makes no one patient. I know tons of people that have difficulties and trials, and they aren't patient at all, okay? They are frustrated, they are angry, they are bitter, and they have a whole list of things that if you should complain about one thing, they can one-up you 10 or 12. Because it is not the trials that produce anything, it's where we're leaning, where we're thinking, where our mind is, where our God is in our life, and how we allow Him to produce these things through our lives. So, the first thing is we can glorify God in our trials. 
uh, we can grow through trials. And the third thing is we can genuinely learn how to love. Jesus was being very, very blunt with the people as he spoke to them. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Whoa. Isn't that the way we should do? You know, I love you, you love me, you know, it should go that way, right? I mean, that, that is, it's part of culture, it's the way culture should be. Jesus says it this way, and it is true, even unbelievers can do that. You know that? A society can do that. You don't need Jesus to act like that. You don't need Jesus or the Bible to be able to do good to someone who's doing good to you. Jesus says it this way, for even sinners love those who love them, but love your enemies and do good. Jesus is calling us to a different kind of love. He's not asking us just simply here to trade, okay? I do good for you, you do good for me. Uh, I'm nice to you, you're nice to me. All those are good, don't stop doing that, all right? Uh, but, but the point is, if you really truly want to understand the love of God, the love of God that we are taught in the Scriptures, the agape love, is a love that is a sacrificial love love. One that does not anticipate a trade at all. One that does not depend upon how well it is received by the others. A love that is similar to this, where Jesus says later on in this passage, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful, that is described in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the type of life Jesus wants us to live and people to be able to see. And when they see that in action, they will be able to determine that we truly get this concept of love. Now, I want to encourage you right now, don't misunderstand this. This happens often where people hear something from the pulpit and they decide this is their new calling in life. It is not your calling in life to be that difficult to love person so that somebody else can grow in their love. That is not what I'm saying. Don't take that out of context. You are called to be loving so people make, make it easier for other people to love. But when God allows that unloving person to come into your life, whether it's through conflict or whatever it is, it's that opportunity to be able to love just like Jesus loves. And as we think about this, this is what Jesus was saying in John chapter 13 when he washed the feet of the disciples. and They're all arguing about who's going to be the greatest. They were all concerned about all these various things. And Jesus is telling them, I want you to understand this. This is how people are going to know that you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. By your capacity to love each other when it's hard. Love each other when you've disappointed can you imagine what it was like for the disciples to gather back together again after the trial, after the crucifixion? Can you imagine the potential to finger point and talk about, well, well look what you did when he got arrested. Look what you did when he got arrested. And, and the capacity for them to love and have unity after all of that? I think they had to start putting into practice that concept right away if they wanted to have any kind of impact in the lives of those people God had called them to be able to minister to and the love that they have for one another to be able to show that, that Jesus is the answer. It's a sadness in communities when the lighthouse of that community for years, the local church in that community, has conflict in it and they're not responding biblically, and they're not loving each other. The light of that church goes out. 
and people in the community see the church instead of being that place where I can go is safe, it's a place where they don't want to go because they fear that they will experience uh, similar treatment. That's why it's critical that we not only understand the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to make disciples, but we also understand the great commandment that we love the Lord our God and we love our neighbor as ourselves. And so with this, we, we look at the value of seeing conflict a certain way, but we also look for a solution. I mentioned earlier that, that I'm a Christian conciliator. That means I do mediations. And it's very, very common for me to spend some time in very difficult, hard situations where people are angry with each other, people are scared, and as a result, so when I, when I talk about this, it's, it sometimes uh, can be, be difficult. Uh, but, but I like to, in those times when I'm not in the heat of the battle, to kind of look at it from a little lighter perspective. Uh, Jesus uh, did talk about this concept of, of feeling judgmental of others, because that's what happens. Uh, party A is judging party B, and party B is judging party A. And Jesus is, is really exhorting us in Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged. He's not saying don't be discerning. He's not saying don't take the book and try to evaluate what you see around uh, people in regard to their behaviors and such. But what he's addressing is, how do I see the motives of the other person? How do I see what, the, what he is going to talk about as that speck in that brother's eyes? He says, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, and, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? He goes on to say some very harsh words. He says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you'll be able to clearly see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus never intended for us to totally ignore other people that are having difficulties. But what he's saying is sometimes, because of the way we've behaved, because of the way we've uh, contributed to the problem, we're not the best person to try to do some eye surgery on this other person until we start working on the things in our own life. And as a result, then, you might get something like this. You know, you want to, hey, you have a problem. And the person says, no, I don't want you to help me. Because if you can just fathom what it's like, uh, I personally don't like anyone messing with my eyes any more than they have to. But I just can't imagine what it would be like if someone had a log in their own eye and they're coming at me and I think they're going to beat me in the head with that thing as they get closer. And that's the way it seems to people when someone wants to come in and say, I want to help you, but they say, but you're part of the problem. And God is calling us to look at our part of the problem. Too often, party A is sitting there thinking, if only party B didn't do X, Y, or Z, we wouldn't have to meet with Scott. Party B is over here thinking, if only party A would not done such and such or would just change, we wouldn't have to meet with Scott. I don't know what the problem is meeting with Scott is. But the point is they're thinking the solution is over across the table. When God says, start looking at yourself and what God has given you an opportunity to do. I just kind of look at it from this perspective. Uh, we might, uh, most people I, would, I, I, I talk to, they're very, very quick to say, I'm not perfect, but, and then after the but is a list of things, okay? And usually you know what's after that list of things? It's not a list of their own faults. It's usually the list of the other person's faults. I don't know why that is, you know? And, uh, but the God is saying, even if, even if, we feel we're 25% of the problem. This happens sometimes. We don't do percentages. But, but if party A thinks I'm only 25%, they're the majority of it. Party B, you can interview them and say, oh, well, I'm probably 25% of it. They're the majority of it. That's 25% plus 25%. People in conflict are bad at math. 
because that does not add up to 100%. But the point is, we are 100% responsible for whatever we contributed to the issue. And if people could focus on that, instead of trying to weigh and compare, weigh and compare, I'm not as bad as the other person, so they should do something. We should do something based on the fact that we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we did with whatever percent, whatever the log is in our own lives. So whether it's sinful words or sinful motives or sinful reactions, can I tell you, so there's some sinful motives that we sometimes don't take in consideration? We usually think of sinful, sinful, sinful motives or just those motives that are aligned with our greed or aligned with maybe our just honoriness or whatever, or power struggles. Sometimes there's a sinful motive of fear. When we are not trusting God and we're reacting out of our lack of faith in God and that's impacting the lives of other people. That contributes to a conflict. We need to own up to that. Or there might be some other things where we become defensive and we become bitter and angry and we're just justifying in our minds that they did this to me and therefore I am in the right to act this way. That's sinful and it contributes to it. And sometimes we, we think that as long as we're just reacting to it, it's not our problem. It's like the kids on the school ground. Uh, when you see them fighting and you grab one and one, grab the other. All right, first question we ask is, who started it? It's almost like if you didn't start it, you get a free swing because everyone's going to give you that. But what I found in conflict, each person thinks the other person started it, you know? And when we can just get off that and realize that my sinful reactions, whether they were here or whether they were here or whether they were here or wherever they were in the process, I need to own up to them and I need to seek God's healing and his forgiveness in that particular situation. And so as we look at what we might own, here's just a, a little quick diagram. I'm not going to take a whole lot of time on it, but I want you just to see that, that typically we fall into one of two categories. Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, calls it the slippery slope, that we might be those that uh, go on the escape side or those that might be on the attack side. He also uses these terms, the peace fakers and the peace breakers. I have people that tell me they're peacemakers, but in reality they're peace fakers because really their goal is as long as nobody's fighting and everybody's getting along, peace reigns. But that's not true. That's not true. You can't just sweep everything underneath the rug and just make sure that, that we just don't talk about this. If we don't talk about this, we'll have peace. It might be peaceful out here, but inside... There's a lot of war and battle that is going on. And uh, us peace fakers, we might say, just leave me alone. I don't want to talk about that. No fishing on this topic. People have to walk on eggshells because they know if they bring up a certain topic, it's not going to be peace. And as a result, the peace fakers uh, can emphasize things in their life. And if that becomes us, okay, uh, then we need to own that as to what we're contributing to the problem. Uh, we, we have that attitude that I'm just protecting my person. When they share those things, I feel bad, and I don't want to feel bad anymore, so I need to shut them down in regard to that. Uh, the, the other side is what we call the peace breakers. And again, I would say uh, neither one of these situations are these things in and of themselves wrong, but when they start taking over and they start impacting our relationships, we need to evaluate that. Peace is control. Some people are called control freaks, Okay. I'm not asking you to raise your hand if you've ever been called that. But what I believe in that situation, there are people that see peace as control. And if you don't have control, I'm taking control. 
right? Uh, they just want to make sure someone's got their hands on the steering wheel, right? And uh, as a result, though, they aren't trusting God for control in the situation, and they are overreaching in their emotions and overreaching in their energies and in their actions in such a way that's impacting the thing, even though they're wanting a good thing. Uh, they, they might be uh, causing some difficulties. Just work with me. Uh, well, I just need to drive home my point. Maybe that's why I need to say it six different ways, six different times. Or maybe I need to get louder. Or I need to try to somehow get your attention. Because if you only understand what I'm saying, you will finally get it and we will have peace. The thing of it is, is these things are not in themselves not sinful, but when they become the desire of our heart, that moves from a desire to a demand. As James says in James chapter 4, he says that they, why are there wars and fights among you? Are they not the desires in your members that are warring within you? That, that something that could be a good desire has now gotten out of control. And our, our goal in looking at this chart is not to look and say, aha, that's so-and-so. No. This is where James says, and use the mirror and look at the mirror and allow the Word of God to convict your own heart so that you can see the log in your own eye. Uh, as we look at the third item, first one was how do we see conflict? It's an opportunity to glorify God, to grow, and to love other people as God has designed us. Number two is so that we can genuinely see our part and have an investment in the, uh, in, in the solution. And then the third one is just simply this, how I see other people. To be honest, in a conflict, many times I have seen people as individuals to fear, or I might see them as the solution to be able to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Uh, in his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, uh, Ed Welch addresses this situation and did so in such a fantastic fashion that it convicted my heart that, that there were times in my ministry where I was a people pleaser. And I was more concerned about what other people thought than I was about what God thought. And as a result, that impacted the way in which I was genuinely able to love people. And one of those areas is where we get to the place where we're looking at what we think the issue is with the other person. Paul says this in Philippians 2, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition uh, uh, or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. When we're looking at the interests of others or what the others are motivated by, we're able to better love them. Now, we sometimes know, we think we know why someone does what they do. I've had people tell me, I know why they did that. And I'm like, whoa, how do you know that? Man looks on the outward appearance. Who is it that really gets a chance to look on the heart? It's God that gets to look on the heart. Now, people will give us a glimpse of their heart uh, as we ask them questions and we listen to them and we give them a safe environment where they're able to be able to share what really is motivating them. But all too often, we don't give them that opportunity because we've already decided why they're doing what they're doing. I call it the grid, the grid that we put over our eyes because person has done X, Y, Z so many times so that now I know X, Y, Z means A, B, C, and that's why you're doing this is because of that, because that's how I'm interpreting that. But I believe God has given 
given us that opportunity to interact with each other, to listen to each other, to seek to understand, to seek to be understood, so that we can have the privilege of removing the grid on how somebody sees us, and that we can be able to help them truly understand why we're doing what we're doing. There's so many things I could talk about in regard to this, but one of the things I exhort you to do is to realize that people are just different than you are, and they see things different than you do. And for you to try to love them through the same scope of how you see you ought to be loved is sometimes going to develop some difficulties. Now, in the picture above, maybe you've seen this before, but in this picture, uh, there is an ear. And I don't know if you can see an ear in the picture. Anybody see an ear in the picture? Some of you see an ear, yeah, some not committal, you don't, you don't know what it means, it's a psychological test, he's going to tell me that I'm XYZ or whatever. No, but if you were to look, this right here uh, is an ear, and if you saw that as an ear, uh, then you would be able to, uh, to see, yeah, yeah, you'd be able to see that that's a nose right there, right next to the ear, and there's a chin uh, and such. But if you saw that instead, where the arrow is pointing to as an eye, then you see a much larger nose, don't you? Okay, and the, and the point of this is not to determine how romantic you are or anything along that line. But the point is, is for you to be able to recognize that there, two people could be seeing the same experience and seeing it totally different. And it's our role to give them the benefit of the doubt and desire to listen to them and understand them before we judge them uh, through the grid that we put upon them. Uh, we also need to recognize sometimes we're on a different continuum. There's some people that are introverts, some people are extroverts. There are some people that are very assertive, and there's some people easygoing. You've got people that are systematic, and you've got some people that are spontaneous. And you know what i found? These people like to find each other, right? And they marry each other. And it's a lot of fun on those first few uh, portions of marriage and courting and all that. But then finances come into the picture, and then children come into the picture. And you think, why can't you be more systematic? I just loved how spontaneous you was before. But when you got spontaneous and spent all our money, I don't like that no more. But recognizing the idea that we are different and, and opposites can attract. But the reality is that wears off quickly. And we start then judging people because they're inferior because they're not like us. And, and the important thing is for us to recognize, if we're going to genuinely love other people, let's just recognize that they are not like us, and that's probably a good thing, okay, uh, that they are not like us, and we ought to seek to understand them. A second of all on here is we have the benefit of the doubt. Too often we might think that they're doing what they're doing is because they're angry with us, that they're vengeful, or they're just, just hard to get along with people. There are a variety of reasons why people do what they do. Sit down and think about yourself. There's things you've done that you look back over it and you said you wished you wouldn't have done it. Sometimes it's been because you've been angry and you respond in anger, but sometimes it's been because you were fearful of something and you responded out of fear. Sometimes it's because you were uh, uh, frustrated, not with the decision someone made, but the process in which they went through to give it because it, it was not respectful to you or it didn't get, give you a chance to give your opinion or your opinion was just totally uh, treated without any kind of, of uh, uh, consideration. And so at times we see these things happen when we, we put together uh, this wonderful thing called church and we're so different as uh, 1 Corinthians 12 exhorts us to, to recognize our differences of gifts, but in that we have to have a heart of accepting the fact that we're not all an eye, we're not all an ear, 
and we're not all the way which we are, and people aren't always how we see them, and that's why it's important for us to be willing to work together with them, and that's how we see really what a win is. That as we put these things together, as I'm seeing conflict from a biblical perspective and I'm renewing my mind, as I'm seeing myself from a biblical perspective and I'm renewing my mind, if I'm seeing others from a biblical perspective and I'm renewing my mind in regard to that, I should also see what a win looks like. Some people have uh, football teams that they don't know what a win looks like, okay? <laughs> and they're wondering, we don't know what a win looks like. There are some people in their lives, they don't know what a win looks like. Sometimes in relationships, they don't know what a win looks like. But I can encourage you that there's some things that the Bible says involves wins. If you are a peacemaker, you might think there is a win because we are no longer talking about this, and this person has gone away, or they're no longer dealing with it, and we can move on. If you're a peace breaker, you might think a win is, oh, they listen to me and we're doing what I want. But they might realize in either of those situations, the situation has just been kicked down the road like a can being kicked down the road until something should come up again. And as a result, relationship hasn't been restored. Forgiveness hasn't been granted. Uh, peace is not really there. It's where people learn how to work around each other and not genuinely work with each other. Because working with you, as I got that grid, is not easy or fun, so I'll try to figure a way not to. And God wants us to be able to win, to be able to pull that off, and be able to be one. When Jesus prayed that in John chapter 17, he prayed for his disciples and the disciples that would follow the disciples, that we would be one like he and the Father are one. And we can't have that oneness if we don't trust each other. We can't have that oneness if we're just trying to work around each other. So a win is seen this way. When, when we have been offended, we ought to, as much as depends on us, seek peace by being willing to go and talk to someone about the way in which they impacted our lives, their fault, their sin, and uh, between you and him alone. It's so tempting to want to go to somebody else and say, I don't want to make a big deal about that, but so-and-so did such-and-such, and I think of such-and-such. What do you think about it? Well, that could have good results. The person might say, you know, that's a big thing. You better go talk to this other person. Or the other thing could happen. You know, I had a similar experience with that person. And before long, Satan is right there in the midst of the two of us. And uh, we're collaborating against this other individual. And we are putting a grid and sharing a grid. And we're interpreting the other person. That's why I think Jesus says, go alone. Try to work on it alone. Don't give Satan an opportunity to develop some opportunities of gossip and such. Go alone, and if they hear you, if there is a genuine uh, working through the issues, you have gained your brother. It's not about winning an argument. It's not about getting something off your chest. It's not about giving someone a piece of your mind. It's about winning that relationship. Kind of giving us an idea of how important this is, Jesus said this, uh, uh, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Uh, this is in Matthew chapter 5. And as you are looking at this passage, you can only imagine what Jesus was saying here. This is a time when uh, they talked about offering as being that time when you are trying to have this good relationship with God. The offering, if you read through the Old Testament, it was supposed to be a very special offering. It wasn't just find a lame you know, animal that you don't want to use for anything, let's just take it to the priest, that was supposed to be chosen out specially. And so it should represent your relationship with God. 
And so even though we don't do that, there are some things in our churches and our ministries and stuff that are very valuable to us, and they're very important to us. And what, what God is encouraging us is if we're at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, that uh, you shouldn't just sit there and think, whoa, wow, um, he's got something against me. I should be willing to do this, to leave my gift before the altar and go. Wow, that's radical stuff. Um, I'm, I'm here to worship God. I'm here to work on God. And God is saying, well, I want that. But really, this relationship here is now being affected by this relationship here. And you kind of need to drop what you're doing here. Go take care of this. And when you come back, we'll be able to do this. Folks, there are some times where, where we have things that we need to work out with someone else. And we've chosen not to do it. And we've justified that. And we've thought, we'll just go ahead and do things with God. And God brings to our heart and he reminds us. That's one of the things I love about communion. Because in communion, we're, we're encouraged. Evaluate your heart. Evaluate your heart. Is there someone that you need to make sure you're right with? This is a similar situation here. When God brings to our mind, it's far better to do what he says here, to go and talk about it. What, what, what horrible it would be if, if we've done something to hurt someone or we think we've hurt them, and for them to say, no, there's nothing to that, but thank you for having that kind of an attitude that you care so much about our relationship that you'd be willing to drop everything and come and talk to me. <laughs> Wouldn't that be the worst case scenario? <laughs> uh, the best case scenario is they say, thank you for coming to me. My heart has been broken over the fact that you did X, Y, and Z and didn't seem to care. And uh, your willingness to work this out means a lot to me. So that recognizing, be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. You can see how this plays out. Uh, Paul said this five times, that I might be able to win these people. He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. I have become all things to all men, that I might be all, by all means save some. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, by the way, just prior to the 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that we looked at at the beginning of this message about how that we can glorify God in conflict, Paul is actually talking about his desire is to win people to Jesus Christ. He wants to see them saved. And he says this five different times in this passage as he goes through the various ways in which he takes his own preferences and lays them aside. He doesn't change his doctrine. He changes his preferences so that he can reach people for Jesus Christ. And as a result, he is being able to say that I care more about the testimony of Jesus Christ than I do about my own self and what I think to be important to me. And this is where God is calling to us as to what a win is. Because as you get back to this point right here, how will they know that we are the disciples of Jesus Christ by the love that we have for one another. When will that love have the most impact? Not when we are simply just loving those that are loving us, because even unbelievers can do that. It's when we are able to genuinely love when we're hurting, because we have to depend on the mercy of God, the grace of God, the power of God, the truth of His Scriptures, to be able to do that. And as a result, He gets the glory and we are able to be obedient to him. And people come to know Jesus as their Savior. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to be here this morning. What a, what a uh, wonderful group of people to be able to share 
uh, these principles. They have had an impact in, in many, many people's lives. And Lord, I, I just trust that what you have laid in my heart just reinforces the way they've been living and the way their pastor has preached and taught and that uh, I can just be a tool to be a source of encouragement to them. And I thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.